right. Well, good evening. Welcome to Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Gideon Warrior Network here on the talk show. Thanks for joining us. This is a edited version, or it's going to be, I guess, uh, for last night's fellowship. I did as often, uh, not often, but as sometimes I have done in the past, I failed to hit that record button. And we went over some things uh, last night that seemed to be of some interest. And when I announced that I had failed to hit that record, it was an exasperation sigh on everybody who were participating. So my apologies to those uh, who were attending last evening's Open Fellowship on September 10th. Uh, this is September 11th. Uh, if you are scouting talk to looking for something to listen to, I am not going to be doing a 9-11 remembrance uh, type broadcast. So. This is, however, a little walk through history. And as I studied last night and began the the fellowship last night, that if everybody wanted, I'd take us down a little road, a little walk through history. And it's not the history that happened uh, or uh, that we are led to believe uh, happened 18 years ago this night, this day. So anyhow, this little walk through history begins with what many people knew uh, that I had become a uh, trustee uh, for one of our parishioners' uh, uh, estates. And uh, she had property in New Mexico, and that required me to go to New Mexico uh, on different occasions to deal with and uh, the aspects of her estate. And anyhow, in that course, um, I also became aware, uh, looking around uh, for things that we might be able to take advantage of doing uh, while we were there, uh, I did learn about the lost Luna Stone. Now, I had not known about it in all of my life, and nobody had ever introduced me to anything that had it, had, uh, interestingly enough, another brother had indicated through a a text message to me, I believe it was, or an email, I don't recall which I guess now, but he wanted me to know about this lost Luna Stone. And it turned out that I was going there with my son here directly like the next day or something to that effect. So I I waited until I was actually there, and then I got a photograph with uh, my son and myself, and we uh, sent that on to Brother James. And so this message I announced last night is, is in essence, a message for Brother James because I didn't have time to deal with it, although I've been dealing with this uh, lady's estate for a couple of years. I did not have time to further uh, look into all the information that would be available surrounding the Lost Luna Stone. Now, the Lost Luna Stone is in an area of uh, central west uh, New Mexico, just uh, southwest of Albuquerque. You take uh, Interstate 25 South. And I believe we said it was 134 or 113 or something that, that um, uh, Highway 6 goes 
west out of Los Lunas, but essentially you just drop down on 25 and then you uh, you get to Los Lunas and you head west and it's it's about uh, oh, 80 miles or so from from Albuquerque. Anyhow, uh, so I wanted to share some more things because I have done a little bit more research now and I wanted to be able to share that because um, it's something that is part of America's history that you're not being told about. And in essence, uh, the purpose was to uh, share it and make it a known and then to discuss you know, why this part of our history or America's history is, is not being discussed and shared and, and so forth. Uh, anyhow, the Indians from the area call it uh, by its ancient title, and the ancient title is Chero Los Mogugino, Mogugino, Mogugino. Cerro, uh, C-E-R-R-O-L-O-S, uh, M-O-G, or Q-U-J-I-N-O, and it means Cliff of the Strange Writings. It has often been dubbed by most that refer to it as either Hidden Mountain or Mystery Mountain, and the Lost Luna Stone itself is the particular thing that is generally referred to. Now, there's there's more to the story, though, but while the stone itself has its own significance, I waited to relay uh, some of the information that I had got here several months ago until I could get a little more information. and. I wanted to, as I say, relay more of the story now that I feel a little bit more able and capable of sharing with you uh, some of the the many particulars that should be of interest to those that would listen. So I do appreciate you bearing with me. I decided to just uh, re-record essentially what I did with my notes uh, last evening and make them available uh, through the archive again. So anybody that uh, should look it up, I'll try to relabel it so it is labeled for the Tuesday night because I know that's what a lot of people do is they look for those and they specifically download those uh, to listen to those audio archives. Now, there are many other archives on the Gideon Warrior Network here on the talk show, so certainly do want to uh, remind you to take a look at those and, and download them so you can listen to them later. If you have some thoughts and some other things you'd like to add, I do appreciate the emails, and you can do that at any time. And it's at gideonelite at protonmail.com, gideonelite at protonmail.com. So it's a pleasure and a joy to get those emails, and I appreciate it. And we will take up topics that we, uh, you know, hear that you'd like to like to bring up. So anyhow, just continuing on. So while the stone itself has its own significance, uh, there is more to the story and more besides just the lost Luna stone. Um, on the mountain, there is basically what amounts to ancient ruins of a camp. And when it's reviewed and studied, it is very reminiscent of a military style or a military nature, a camp with a military, you know, some sort of military nature. The perimeter of it has 
dugouts like you would expect, foxholes and so forth, surrounding the whole perimeter of it. They're referred to as pit houses. And I'll get to that a little bit more as we get on in the information that's being provided here. And what it is, obviously, is they're dugouts they're, uh, so that you can look out, so you can see what's coming. And they're throughout that entire perimeter, as I say. And so there's a view of all the approaches. And so there's a view from all approaches around. I apologize if there's some internet glitches on this recording. Um, we are experiencing quite a tremendous amount of rain and rain activity. And I'm fairly far from the internet uh, um, uh, you know, origination point. And so uh, I do get uh, kicked, <coughs> excuse me, I do get kicked around a little bit on this uh, internet service. So hey, bear with it. You'll get most of it, and I'll recap some things or you know whatnot. But so you've got this view from all the approaches, which is obvious that it was intended for something, uh, having this military you know style or nature. Uh, on the western center, there is what is referred to as a a complex or a chieftain's complex, a quarters, if you will, or something of that nature. And it's over 200 feet in length. And I didn't know some of the things about the mountain. I knew that there was a few other things up there, and we did scour around and look for things. But, you know, when you can get an aerial view, you can get a whole lot better sense. And if I'd have had an aerial view with me at the time, because... I would have certainly enjoyed it, um, you know, tremendously having that aerial view and then to have walked around for that. Now, I do know there are a few guests that are, are, are um, tuning in here to Gideon Warrior Network, and I do want to tell you that I am in presentation mode only this evening. Uh, we are, our regular open fellowship is on Tuesday nights, and... Um, your host forgot to hit the record button, and so tonight I'm just doing a replay, if you will. So I do appreciate you joining. I know you're there, and I thank you for joining. And if you want to listen in, that's great. If you want to just download it later, that's fine as well. But I do have everybody muted so that you're in participation mode or presentation mode only. So as I continue here, that little chieftain's complex or that, that chieftain's quarters or whatever you know, one wants to refer to that, a couple hundred feet in length, that's not a, that's not a small quarter. That's not a small location. And uh, as far as the depth, I don't know exactly what the depth is, but I guess if I was to estimate, it would be like 200 by 100. And... Um, I didn't see any other information about that. I did only see that it was 200 feet in length, and that's the only information that I had on it. But looking at it as an aerial, it looks like it probably would have at least been 100, 150 feet maybe in a depth or a width as well. And it has an entrance that's by a steep, narrow, dry wash, and that is very easily defended. It would be very easily defendable if somebody were to try to approach this this camp. And another item was that it's only about a quarter of a mile to an ample water supply. There's the Rio Porcus uh, River, and it's a tributary of the Rio Grande. So it has a strategic, you know, uh, sense to it in terms of being close to water and being able to uh, certainly 
provide for the military encampment that this may have indeed been. And the, as I go on through this, I'm just going to share all the things that I have gleaned from various sources as I looked into this more so that I could share it with Brother James and so forth. And um, because I know that he had an interest in it and was quite envious when I sent him the picture that there we were standing there in front of the lost Buddha stone. So I'm going to do this so that it, it gives him a little bit more than maybe perhaps he had. But the ruins, they bear no resemblance uh, to any Indian sites that are known in the North American continent. Uh, they're unique in the Americas alone, whether South America or North America. And they're surprisingly similar to some things that we find in, guess where, the Middle East. Now, more on that. But even more exceptionally significant than, than even those things are about the site, there's this fallen indigenous piece of basalt rock, and it has an inscription upon it. And the inscription has ancient letters upon it. And it is determined and has been determined that it is in ancient Hebrew, sometimes called Ogham script and or Paleo-Hebrew. It's the large inscription there of what is on the stone, this largest inscription. There's a couple of other artifacts with inscriptions, but this, this inscription here, uh, the largest on the stone itself, is the Ten Commandments. And the smaller inscription simply says, Yahweh, our Mighty One. So, not insignificant, and I'll get into some of the nuances about why those things are significant as we roll along. Um, but because of the significance of that right there, it will actually provide a direct link back to the Middle East and provide some evidence of connection, if nothing else, with Middle Eastern mariners millenniums ago. And that should be of interest and significance to many people as well. And you would think it would be of interest to people in America and certainly people who like to make sure that such um, important things are known to people and they're well marked and so forth. But not so is the case with the Lost Luna Stone. Now, the inscription itself, about it. Geologist George Morehouse dates it to plus or minus 50 years times 40, which is roughly plus or minus 2,000 years ago. Clearly and unequivocally, Paleo-Hebrew, all but five letters of the inscription are recognized as common forms of Paleo-Hebrew. All but five letters. This is not insignificant, so pay attention to that. Three of the five letters um, are to be known variants that have been published about 
So in other words, three of those five letters are letters that have been written about in other publications and are known or became known at some time through other archaeological excavations and so forth. Uh, it's a precise rendering evidenced by both interlinear comparisons of Paleo with modern Hebrew and the Masoretic and the concise Strong's numbers. So in other words, every single word and in the Paleo-Hebrew um, referenced back to Strong's concordance numbers regarding every word that is used in the biblical record, these are a spot-on match, every one of them. So whether it's done by interlinear comparison, uh, modern Hebrew, uh, of the Masoretic, and or the concise Strong's, it's a spot-on match for each and every one of them. So that's not insignificant either. Uh, the second inscription is on a boulder on the southwest corner of the camp, and this one actually reads in Paleo-Hebrew, Yahweh is our mighty one, as I had mentioned just a few minutes ago. Um, there is a report of a third inscription, and that one is, has a record of being translated by Dr. Pfeiffer of Harvard in 1948. This particular um, stone with the inscription cannot be found now, but it is interpreted or ascribed um, by this Dr. Pfeiffer as having stated, uh, quote, temple at my end, end quote. So in other words, meaning that this was something that was erected at the end of a person's journey. Um, there was a commission that they were under to come to a certain you know, place or at which time you would return and turn around. So wherever this journey or wherever this was going to come to a completion at end, and this is what it was marked as, temple at my end. Uh, there is a fourth missing, and it also is not to be found at all, So it, 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 uh, but it, it is reported to have read Altar of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, with the Tetragrammaton Y-H-W-H. And it has, as I indicated, been mentioned uh, by others. It's been mentioned by other investigators that have investigated the site in years past. Now, back to the Pfeiffer letter uh, there in 1948, I do have um, something from there that I thought I would read to you and share with you because I think there, there is something stated that's incorrect. In his letter in 1948, this, uh, uh, he's a, uh, he was a professor there, and I think he was a, somehow associated with the Harvard Semitic Museum. But he attributes the characters as being Phoenician. And that is, from my understanding from archaeologist Ray Katt, oftentimes they still, I think, as he re relayed shortly later in his life, that he was coming to a conclusion that Phoenician and Phoenician writings were likely Israelitish in nature. And I never had any opportunity to speak with him about that uh, to try to get more understanding 
uh, from him or anything, but uh, that is just something that I remember from a message that he had done where he seemed to allude to the fact that that everybody's particular idea of who the Phoenicians were was probably incorrect. Um, anyhow, uh, he attributed these letters to the Phoenicians, but according to Exodus 32, 15-16, the Israelites were given those letters. So as you know, all ancient Hebrew writing, which comprises the Bible, it was given to Moses this new style or this new writing that was going to be used to basically provide what has become the recorded document that we've come to know as, as the Bible or the scriptures. And so it is interesting that we find that we know that those letters were only attributed or certainly were given to, to Moses to you know give to the Israelites. And um, Clement of Alexandria also stated that Eupolemus uh, wrote in the kings of Judah, quote, Moses taught Judah letters. And as I was reading these things, I thought about the time in the days of Christ where they said when Christ began the reading and he was reading out of Isaiah and everybody was marveling and saying, how is it this man knows letters? <clears throat> well, we wouldn't know exactly what that means and what it, the significance of even the statement would have been by many of those at the time unless we know more of the story, if you will. And so this is exactly it, is that you know they were the learned ones, remember, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones that you know professed to, to have the letters, if you will, to have the knowledge to be able to read the letters, to be able to uh, guide you know, the layperson into the right way with God. Well, obviously they were not because Christ you know, excoriated them numerous times and said, you know, they, they say, but they do not. And he reminded us to do everything they say, but don't do as they do because they say, but do not. So uh, it just you know, popped into my head as I began to think about how it is written here that Moses taught Judah letters. The Phoenicians received from Judeans and Greeks from Phoenicians. So continuing on in this statement by uh, 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 Clement of Alexandria referring to Eupolemus, it says, I'll read it again because I broke it up. Uh, he wrote in Kings of Judea, quote, Moses taught Judah letters. Then it continues, the Phoenicians received from Judeans and Greeks from Phoenicians. Eusebius confirms this to some degree as he writes about Deodorus citing Leosthenitis, uh, who indicates, quote, Phoenicians, having learned them from the Syrians, passed them to the Greeks. And I made a little note for myself here, reminding myself the Israelites were taken into the Assyrian captivity. So this would have been the ten northern tribes. Now, it's quite possible that some of those that were taken into Assyrian captivity would still have been um, either of tribes, of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites, because they you know, uh, would have had some connections and ties with the rest of the ten northern tribes. 
whether they were taking wives and so forth, you know, within the Israelite, the entire Israelite uh, group, if you will, of the 12 tribes. So there is possibility uh, that there would have been some Judahites or, you know, Benjamites or other parts of the Israelite uh, the group. Um, so that note that I made to myself there was that, you know, when they're taken into Assyrian captivity, Syria was, of course, a part of the Assyrian captivity. So you have essentially the Assyrian monarchy or the Assyrian, um, um, oh, I'm looking for the name, uh, you know, power structure, the Assyrian uh, power structure. <clears throat> I'm still not getting it right in my head as to what I wanted to say about that, but uh, the Assyrian, and then Syria would have been a part of it, so it's quite possible you would have had Judahites within Syria, and uh, we've discussed this before. When they took peoples into captivities, when there was conquering nations that took over, as the Assyrians did, they would bring these, these captives into areas within their, their dominion, and they would keep them in some respects in intact, um, um, cohesive units because it's easier to control. Plus, they have an open channel to the communications. <clears throat> in other words, if there was some you know, plague that was starting out in this one quarter of the dominion, and they would be able to communicate with um, elders and leaders from those tribes in that group and say, you know, what's going on, you know, and try to learn what might be afflicting or causing, you know, the issue that's going on there. Plus, <clears throat> it was also easier to keep them under control in terms of, you know, you take a bunch of people in and they're all foreign to you in terms of their ideas, the way they think, the types of religious modes, all of these other things that they do and so forth. It's much easier to keep them in somewhat intact in within the dominion, and uh, you know have leaders and so forth that you are going to communicate with it within those those captives. So uh, quite possibly, and it it indicates here that that um, uh, from this Leosthenides. Uh, quote, Phoenicians, having learned them from Syrians, passed them to Greeks. Um, and Arami, uh, Judahites. Let's see. Um, just going through my notes here. Sometimes I don't make enough. But anyhow, uh, RE, I have, for example, Arami, Judahites. Judahite captives were seafarers they were used by the Babylonians to explore far lands. And this block style of letters saw popular use after the Babylonian conquest. So right there we already have some more information about this style of letters that we see. And the question is, was it from seafarers who were gone at the behest of the captivity? In other words, when the captivity took place, were some of these seafarers already gone on seafaring journeys and um, then returned? Or is it, you know, just captive seafarers that were of the Judahite tribes, whether Benjamites, Levites, or Judah themselves? And after the return of uh, under Cyrus, 
um, the ancient paleo fell into disuse. So now we've got a little further timeline. We know that essentially after uh, Cyrus that this ancient paleo seemed to no longer have much use anywhere in what we're finding in archaeological records and so forth. <clears throat> um, remember I mentioned that there were five letters and also about the three letters. Um, of those three letters, another common thing uh, I was able to uncover was that three of these letters uh, that were not used in the Middle East were in fact common in Iberia. The Encyclopedia Judaica, uh, section 14, page 1164, indicates, quote, a substantial Judahite Sephardim which migrated to Spain. All right, now ancient Spain, this would have been about 500 BCE when these letters in use in Iberia. So even though these there are five letters that didn't have common uh, use with paleo, we now know that three of them were common in usage in another part of the world in ancient Spain, in Iberia, and have been found archaeologically, which now puts it at about 500 BCE. So now remember we have the 2,000 years, plus or minus, well, now we have an indication that because of some of the letterings that were used, we now know that it has a connection at least to writings and inscriptions and so forth at 500 BCE in the Iberia area of the globe. And that would have been ancient Spain. And an additional thing about this particular you know, inscription is there is a petroglyph on the southern part of the east rim of Mystery Mountain or Hidden Mountain of a man with a beard with Shemite characteristics, not American Indians or Amerindians, as they're sometimes referred to by the uh, you know the the educated elite, I guess. Um, Another aspect is that the Hebrew Union College annual uh, 1971 writes about the Qumran manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls using the ancient paleo. And this is something that is stated there. Quote, when the Qumran manuscripts were discovered more than 20 years ago, this would have been about, you know, 19, well, this was 71 when it was written. So 48, 50, I think, is when the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were found. It says more than 20 years ago, one of the more startling features was the appearance of the Tetragrammaton written in Paleo Hebrew characters. So now you also have in the Dead Sea Scrolls evidence that at that time when those scrolls were set aside to be preserved, when they were written and so forth, they were using the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, for Yahweh, the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now we know we have another thing here that indicates that there are letters in usage 
on the lost lunar stone, which are the tetragrammaton of uh, the God of Creation's actual written name, as it's been referred to. And so, in other words, it, it was a time when they were still using that. They stopped using it ostensibly, so the record seems to indicate that they stopped using the name of God because they believed it was too sacred and they did not want lay people to call upon the name. Um, I believe the latter of that, they did not want the lay people to call upon the name, is probably more likely the accurate reason uh, that it fell out of, out of um, uh, writing and is no longer and was not used in the translations of our Bible. So everywhere where we see God and Lord, we often would have had the, the name of Yahweh uh, written there, and it was transliterated, not just translated. In other words, you didn't have a word, and then you translated the word, or you didn't have a, 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 a Hebrew letter that, was, that stood, or a group of letters that stood for a word, and it's translated so that we can read whatever it said. No, we actually have a transliteration. They took something out that should have been there and put something else in, Lord, God, so as to not have the people call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, uh, another aspect of this whole hidden mountain is that there is also an inscription about a solar eclipse. So, these are some of the facts regarding the, the recording of that eclipse. First of all, it provides a historical key to a date for the inscription because we have the tools available to us now to look at and go back in history to find when something occurred, a lunar eclipse, a solar eclipse, and so forth. And Another item of importance about this solar eclipse inscription is that it contains purely Shemitic, and I did not say Semitic, I said Shemitic, as in Shem. It contains purely Shemitic figures in the pictograph, not Indian. That's not insignificant. In other words, if you were somewhere and you wanted to record for posterity that you were there, and that you wanted to somehow let somebody know, you would not put a figure of a, of a, uh, a, make a pictograph of somebody else or some other image. You would likely try to put something there that would be closely associated to what they would have recognized of you. So they would say, he had to have been here because that was a scarf that he always had around his neck or that was akin to the beard that he had. He had a long beard, you know, or any of those things. And this is exactly what they have is Shemitic figures in the pictograph, not of Indian origin. Another item is that it was published in the Western Epigraphy, Volume 1, Number 2 of December 1983. So they did you know, publicize this this finding and so forth, and, and it did, you know, have, you know, I guess, moderate mention. 
This was in 1983. Now, it depicts a solar eclipse in the constellation of Virgo, and um, it is also as depicted in Ophelazer's uh, 1900 chart, um, uh, chart 36, at 1500 hours on 915-107 BCE, there was an eclipse, a solar eclipse at that particular time. So now we have another time frame. We know the writing was used in Iberia in 500 BC. We now have a date here of the solar eclipse that's depicted in the pictograph as being 107 BC. So we have a couple more pieces that help to guide us toward authenticity and not this as something of a fraud, which by all accounts what's happened in America is this has been discounted as being nothing more than a fraud. And quite frankly, it appears that the Mormon church has a whole lot, has had a whole lot to do with trying to discredit the Las Lunas Stone and the evidence is on it. Well, we all know uh, some of the history about uh, what they believe, you know, Joseph Smith brought. Um, another item about the solar eclipse is that the constellation graphics can, with when they're computer generated and superimposed over the petroglyph, it's an, an undeniable match, undeniable match. And I've now seen the photographs of this superimposition of, of that as well. Now, as to authenticity. So essentially, I just made myself some outline notes regarding some of the key features of the key components that I thought would be nice to share and then give us thoughts to, to ponder about. And as to the authenticity, uh, European settlers said that they have seen it and it's, as recorded, it's recorded as having been uh, known about in the very early 1800s. Um, Indian tribes confirm that the monument's existence prior to their arrival, and hence the name that they gave it, Cliff of the Strange, Strange Writings. In other words, if this was of some Indian, you know, Indian tribes that were here, these Indians would certainly have come to know, oh, it's Cherokee writing, or oh, it's this, you know, uh, tribe's writing, or, you know, they would have had some knowledge and it would not be referred to as Cliff of the Strange writing. So I hope you're following that. Now, another uh, aspect about the authenticity is that there's one letter on the inscription, which is basically an X with a line over the top and a line over the bottom. It apparently is um, representative of a Q, it's in the fifth line of an inscription, but again, that, that Q would be a Paleo-Hebrew letter. It, it's not a Q as we think of the Q right, uh, right now, because they might say, well, where would be the Q in the Ten Commandments? So that's that one letter that is of the five letters that they couldn't connect directly to Paleo. And um, it was first known, that particular letter was first known. In other words, archaeologists and so forth 
came to know about that letter only in 1884. So it's not as if somebody could have known about the letter that was not, you know, archaeologically, uh, you know, with archaeological studies or something else that would have been able to have known the implication of that particular letter or the meaning of that letter um, prior to 1884. I hope you followed that. It's probably a little bit confusing. In other words, our first known indication of the letter and its existence and its meaning, etc., was not known essentially until 1884. So in other words, how could somebody go and inscribe that particular letter in the location where it is in the inscription and so forth and be a fraud if the letter wasn't even known to archaeology and archaeological studies until 1884 because they'd already known about the inscription well earlier in the in the 17 uh, in you know as early as the 18 early 1800 so a full 75 years or so earlier I think it was 1806 when the one party uh, had relayed the information to another like other related to you know somebody else in the family about about the uh, the inscription up there and the Lost Luna Stone Mystery Mountain. All right, so um, in and this particular fact about it not being known until 1884 is uh, evidenced by Jensen in Signs, Symbols, and Scripture, page 290. Figure 247, and that was recorded in 1884. So there's your uh, proof text there. So it, you can't forge a letter that wasn't even known at the time to any of the scholars in existence. Is it possible that there was a scholar who knew of it? It's possible, but those that knew at the time, that was the first time that it had ever been published as having been known or acknowledged. Uh, of its existence and so forth. And and I know that I mentioned that it was. It was found in Iberia um, and dated to 500, but we're still talking about archaeologists digging in the 19th and 20th centuries and uncovering that record. So I hope that I made that clear. Um, the camp uh, is of an identical nature in design and size of Middle Eastern camps. And what's really interesting about that is that, well, I'll get to that in just a second, but um, it's probably where large numbers of Israelites went to observe in the seventh month the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, you know, Feast of Tents. All of these names have been used interchangeably. And it so happened that on this particular uh, month, this solar eclipse, was also um, happening or did happen, and so hence they recorded that uh, for that particular event that happened in that month. So if it's in fact an Israelite camp, and we're going to get to the Middle Eastern connection to it, and we're going to see how it is almost a identical match to an ancient city. Um, a, a outpost in an ancient city, uh, 
uh, I think you'll find that pretty interesting. But, um, you know, certainly we know that there was a solar eclipse recorded there in that month. And we have, you know, historical proof of that because of modern technologies. All right, and I got a few more things that I'll go over, and then basically we, we had a little time for some discussion about it, and so unfortunately you're all going to miss the discussion. But what we did conclude that we would do is that we would probably, uh, Rich suggested that it was interesting, and we should probably see what we can do to pick up on some more information. So he's challenging me to go ahead and keep digging and pull some more things together. And in the meantime, um, as I'm going to go forward here, you're going to learn about some other things that are known in other parts of the Americas, and it happens to be in Rich's part of the country out in Massachusetts. So he elaborated on a few things that were available out there in that area, so I suspect that here next week he'll come back with a little more information about some of those things uh, that are available out on the east uh, coast of America that you'll be able to have some more interesting facts and so forth pertaining to those that we just you know don't know about and certainly it seems important enough that we ought to know about it and it ought to be something that we would be proud to know about and be able to proud, be proud to share but you see if it runs contrary to the narrative and it runs contrary uh, what it is that we've been spoon-fed and taught to believe and, in fact, it would mean that we would have to potentially, uh, what, undo some of the reparations that we've paid to the Indian tribes over the years uh, as being, quote, unquote, Native Americans and how we have, quote, unquote, stolen the land? No, I don't believe so. I think it's abundantly clear that that is not the case. We know from the biblical record, God says he sets the bounds of the number of the children of Israel according to the numbers of the she sets the bounds of the of the people according to the numbers of the children of Israel and so when a, when the numbers of the children of Israel were expanding and there was more land needed it's obvious that God led them to the isles to the west to the nations to the west to those lands of promise of 2nd Samuel 7:10 a land with an eastern sea and a western sea and new Jerusalem and that's uh, you know another part of the the record in the biblical story <clears throat> that many people in Christendom do not have any idea. They have not been taught it by their church clergy, and therefore the children of Israel do not know. So now, as far as the historical record of pre-Columbus, in other words. What's the historical record that we can glean prior to Columbus? There's a whole lot of this. There's a book by the, na uh, the name of America B.C. by Barry Fell, F-E-L-L, -L, America B.C. Very, very good book. I encourage all of you to get that book and, and read it and learn about your American history. Um, it's very enlightening. Anyhow, Besides the numbers of pottery and sculptures and stuff strewn about this North American continent that is prior at least to the second century BCE, uh, Wuthenau, W-U-T-H-E-N-A-U, in the Art of Terracotta Pottery, writes, quote, all kinds of white people, end quote. So in other words, he's indicating that all of this 
uh, you know, pottery and sculptures and so forth on the North American uh, continent are indicative of the kinds made by all kinds of white people. Uh, secondly, uh, the North American Review in 1881 wrote this, quote, Toltecs, men of, tall st- men of tall stature, white and bearded, end quote. So already in 1881, they were writing about records that were known about people that had been here in the North American continent and indicating that it appears to be pottery and sculptures from Toltecs, as they were referred to, and they were men of tall stature, white and bearded. So more evidence before Columbus. Um, Cyrus Gordon, on page 21 of his uh, book, Before Columbus, he writes, quote, Amerindian or Indian types do not appear in any significant numbers until around 300 CE, end quote. So he's an author that has written that Amerindian or Indian type tribes and Indian type peoples do not appear in any significant numbers on the North American continent until around 300 CE. Well, 300 Christian era is already as many as five, six, seven, and eight centuries after 500 BCE, or even you know first and second first and second centuries BCE, you're already talking another 500 years years uh, later than that. So certainly those Amerindian or Indian types do not have a claim to the North American continent as being theirs, or that they somehow founded it, or whatnot. It just simply is is not the case. And there is substantial proof to that. And these are all authors that are available out there, but they're widely not published to to the rank and file, or certainly not used in the school textbooks for you to learn in your history. Um, another writer, Professor Sace, who's a well-known um, uh, in the um, theological circles, S-A-Y-C-E, Professor Sace, in, the, in, the, in his work titled The Races, on page 133, uh, indicates the Gardner Onomastica 1. It's some kind of a chapter, I guess. I don't have the original source for this because I don't have his book. So I gleaned this and wrote it down as, as um, being uh, his quote. Uh, Gardner Onomastica, Gardner Onomastica 1, pages 114 through 119 and 122, it says the white Libyans and Amuru, A-M-U-R-U, living in Palestine, Syria, and Mesopotamia, for example, all were all described as tall, white-skinned people who had blue eyes and red blonde hair. So Professor Sace is indicating that people out of the Libyan area, the Palestine, Syria, Mesopotamian area, for example, were all described as tall, white-skinned people who had blue eyes and blonde hair. Now, one more 
evidence of Mediterranean link would be this in Barry Fell's book, America BC. He has a number of documents of these. Mount Hope, Rhode Island, uh, the Mariners of Tarshish, where there's an inscription that says the Mariners of Tarshish. And that's no small matter. I'm going to expand on that one in just a minute. And then the Ohio Decalogue um, near uh, Newark, Ohio, I believe it is. And then Bat Creek, uh, Tennessee, there's a grave marker uh, written there in Paleo-Hebrew and a number of other things. So just to give you some more idea that of the historical record of being pre-Columbus uh, here on the North American continent, uh, that there being uh, people here prior to Columbus, uh, there seems to be quite a bit of evidence. Now, on the aspects of Mariners of Tarshish, that really hit me, and I got kind of excited about you know what I was beginning to learn. Now, for somebody that knows this and has already learned it, it's going well. Wake up, uh, you know. Glad you finally arrived, and um, that's fine. You know, you can be critical. Um, I mean, the fact that I'm sharing this is not that none of this has ever uh, has been just totally new to me, but what I really wanted to share was the fact that how we have another bit of an understanding about why things are kept from us and why the truth doesn't really get out. And you have to ask, when the truth isn't getting out, who's benefiting? What's going on behind the scenes that truth does not, you know, is, is not able to get out or is not able to be told? And in 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, verses 26 and 28 is a little bit of a reference about Solomon and King Hiram. And I didn't have it open here, but I'll quick flip it open. And I'll go to there and we'll read a little bit out of 1 Kings and Chronicles. And do I have a 2 Kings reference? I don't, uh, I've got a 2 Chronicles reference, but not a 1 Kings, or a 2 Second Kings. So we're at 1 Kings chapter 9, and I'll share with you what is there uh, in this part of the biblical record. And just getting there. 1 Kings 9, 26 to 28. Um, and King Solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion Giver, which is beside Elah on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. I want you to think about that. King Solomon made a navy of ships, Ezion Giver, which is beside Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent in the navy his servants, uh, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir, and fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. All right, and I'll stop there on uh, 26 through 28. Now I want to flip over a page to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses uh, 11. And it says once again, And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of all of Almug trees, A-L-M-U-G trees in the King James, and precious stones. 
And the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house harps, also psalteries for singers. There came, to, uh, there came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And um, then in Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 21, all right, and I think I am there now, it says, for the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Huram, which means Hiram, every three years, once, excuse me, I'll start again, for the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Huram, pause, every three years, once came the ships of Tarsus, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Okay, another little piece of information that we have there. We know that there were apes. We know there was silver. We know there was ivory. We know the name of Ophir was referred to. All right, so now we can get some more historical record from Josephus. And I'm going to read you some excerpts from Josephus and a couple of others. Um, let's see. Uh, we begin with this. Um, did I read Second? I've not read Second Chronicles 20 yet, so let me read Second Chronicles 20 also, and I'll start with it. Um, we already read the, the one out of uh, Chronicles earlier, all right? And this is Second uh, Chronicles 20, 35 to 37. Quote, and after this did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. The same did wickedly in doing so. He joined him with himself to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships into Ezeon Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodiahu of Mereshah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined yourself with Ahaziah, Yahweh has made a breach in your works, and the ships were broken, that they were not able to go to Tarshish. Second Chronicles 20, 35, and 7. So, now, Ezeon Geber was located at the headwaters of the Gulf of Aqaba. And there were only two ways that these ships could have traveled to Tarshish. You either go around Africa or you go around the world by the route to India. So that we can know for sure which way they went, we would want to, as I said earlier, refer to something that we would find in the historical record left us by Josephus in Antiquities, 914, uh, and this is what he says, quote, And he, Jehoshaphat, was also friendly with Achab's son, Ahaziah, who ruled over the Israelites, and joined with him in building the sail to Pontus and the trading stations of Thrace. But he suffered the loss of his property, for the vessels were destroyed because of their great size, and for this reason he was no longer keen about ships, end quote. Now, one thing that we know also is that we've been told in our history books that the Nina, the, Mint, uh, the Pinta, and the Santa Marie, these were some of the 
the best and biggest, you know, vessels that that sailed the seas, you know. And <clears throat> it simply is not the case. Uh, there seems to be a lot of historical record that there were some massive seafaring vessels um, that uh, that uh, traversed the seas. Um, Pontus, the city there, Pontus, that is referred to in the scripture, it's located in Asia Minor along the Black Sea coast, and Thrace was situated in what's eastern Greece today, and Bulgaria area. And there's no way that jo Jehoshaphat could have expected to reach those ports of call with one, without taking one of those two, two routes. And it seems pretty evident that he was going to sail around the world. In 1 Kings 22, verse 49, this is what we read. I'm going to flip back real quick. 2249. Then said Ahaz, I, the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with thy servants in the ships, but Jehoshaphat would not. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. In, in this part of the story, in 1 Kings 22:49, um, I think I read the wrong one there. Yeah, I must not have recorded that right. Um, I'd have to look for it again, but I'll find it. But basically, um, um, the part of it that I was looking for, and... I'm pretty sure I read it the other night, but for some reason my I'm not seeing it on my list here. Maybe it was recorded in Chronicles that I read it out of. It might be. Let me quick flip open Second Chronicles 20 and just see if that is where I read the record of that out of Second Chronicles 20. And 35 37. Let me just see if that's where I read it from. Yeah, this is it. All right, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, verses 35 37. And after this, did Jehoshaphat, um, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel? who did very wickedly. So in other words, the king of Judah joined Ahaziah, who was you know, acting as a wicked king, and he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in easy on Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dave, uh, Dodaba of Meresha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord has broken thy works and the ships were broken, that they were not able to go to Tarshish. And so that's a little more clear part of the record here, is that we find that God did not like this joining together and did not want the Israelite king partaking in the benefit, if you will, of these trips to uh, the far reaches of the globe. And so that's another 
you know, aspect there in and of itself that we're able to glean from the biblical record that upon first reading those things, I can tell you that I, I didn't give them much thought at the time other than a part of a quote-unquote story. But notice how interesting it is to learn that there's other parts to the story that we did not know, did not understand, because we've only got, you know, a small portion of it. All right. Ophir, as Josephus states, was in India. Josephus Antiquities 8, 6, 4 clarifies that. And also 1 Kings 9, 26, 8, 2 Chronicles 9, 17, and uh, 9, 10. Um, so the chronological date that was given by Strabo, actually, for the first Phoenician ventures beyond the uh, Pillars of Heracles, which is Straits of Gibraltar, they're one and the same, they referred to them as the Pillars of Heracles, and that was shortly after 1184 BC, by Solomon's time here in the 10th century BCE, the Phoenician sailors were able to show Solomon's servants the way to India. So how could they have known the way to India unless they encircled Africa or the world to sail there? And remember, Solomon had fleets in Tarshish, which is Tarsus, and, or Tarshish, and, and what they picked up. And it says that they picked up gold from Ophir. And so that it indicates that the fleet must have sailed around Africa, certainly, and probably the world as well. Now, can, can we prove that necessarily? Um, well, September 8, 1522, um, and let's see, uh, here's, what, here's what I wrote down, was that Magellan set out on an expedition leaving Spain on September 20th, 1519, and he returned on September 8th, 1522. That's three years. It's the same thing indicated in the scriptures about three years, and it's the same thing recorded by Josephus in Antiquities um, that these ships that went on these journeys took three years to return. So that gives us some reason to believe that it certainly was a trip that was going around the world. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I have one other one other things. Um, this is from Herodotus. This was written uh, by, wait, where's my notes? Uh, there was an Egyptian pharaoh named Necao, N-E-C-A-O, 609 to 594 uh, BCE. And under this Egyptian uh, leadership, they obviously duplicated such a feat because Herodotus records the trip this way, and he writes, quote, For Libya, meaning Africa, shows clearly that it is encompassed by the sea, save only where it borders upon Asia. And this was proved first, as far as we know, by Nikos, 
meaning Nekao, N-E-C-A-O, king of Egypt. He, when he had made an end of digging the canal which leads from Nile to the Arabian Gulf, sent Phoenicians in ships charging them to sail on their return voyage past the pillars of Heracles until they should come into the northern sea and so to Egypt. So the Phoenicians set out from the Red Sea and sailed the southern sea. Whenever autumn came, they would put in and sow the land to whatever part of Libya they might come, and there await, oh, there await the harvest. Then, having gathered in the crop, they sailed on, so that after two years had passed, it was in the third that they rounded the pillars of Heracles and came to Egypt. There they said what some may believe, though I do not, that in sailing round Libya they had the sun on the right hand. Now that's significant because having the sun on the right hand would have some indication to a seafarer as to where you are and where you're going. <laughs> and uh, so there's just some more writings and so forth that indicate more information on that. And pretty much I believe this is about where we left off. And um, right now, uh, based on the time that I started here, it's probably uh, about right. So I don't want to get into too much more for the purpose of this particular one, but um, a lot of interesting things, obviously, that we're able to learn and to glean. And again, what is all this doing? Okay, first thing that we're doing is certainly this is a part of our America's history that the vast you know, preponderance of Americans have no knowledge of. They have no knowledge that this exists on their soil. They have no knowledge that there are artifacts all over America. They have no knowledge there are inscriptions dating back. They have no knowledge that it was their people who were migrating, uh, or I should say, um, you know, on ships and traveling the globe and coming to other lands to uh, look for uh, things that were of desire and so forth back in the Mediterranean region. And um, we don't know about it. We don't know about it because we've had so much stuff stuffed at us and thrown at us and so much false teaching and so much, you know, preconceived. We all have these preconceived notions about everything. I mean, if you think back on your own youth and you say, gee, what did I know about ships, about, you know, the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria, I, you know, whatever pictures you've seen depicted, you would have thought that that's about as big as a ship could be. And then to find out that there were ships that actually had 500 crew members on, and you think about 500 crew members each having only one square foot, what size ship would you have to have 500 crew members on in just one square foot? Um, and then you think of whatever gear they would have. Then you think of the food that would be necessary to feed them. Then you understand here that you know, they would stop and sow the land, and then they would partake of that, and continue on in their journey, it makes sense because you couldn't carry so much stuff 
for such a long journey. So you would put in crops and then you would partake of those crops and continue your journey. So a lot of things right there that, you know, we at first blush wouldn't even think about until we start reading history and stuff and we go, wow, you know, these are some of the things that they did. And hey, that makes sense. And hey, that was smart. And hey, this was good. And hey, that was good. And when you think about the stories that we've been told about the first pilgrims coming here, um, boy, you know, it's lucky that any of them did survive because totally unprepared, you know, seemingly totally unprepared and very few wanting to work and all of them wanting to come for riches. Well, why do you suppose that was? After centuries and centuries and centuries of the Dark Ages where, you know, the iron rule of Rome uh, and papal Rome to boot, you know, there was not anybody who was anybody that was going anywhere. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have made yourself a big ship to go somewhere. So these lands then fell into a lot of you know disuse, obviously, and a lot, and no more migrations to these these Americas and so forth because it just there was no practicality to do so until. The time came that God had appointed and they came one of a city and however that scripture is quoted, I won't mangle it in a, in a paraphrase, but to, there was more than, what was it, 25 million people migrated to the shores of the North American continent. It's one of the greatest mass migrations that's ever occurred in the history of mankind. And so it's an important part and would to God that our own Israelite brethren, the Israelites of the Bible, remember, when we do these broadcasts and so forth, we're trying to continue to help people learn and understand that the chosen people of the Bible, the Israelites of the Bible, which includes the tribe of Judah, is not a cast-off, put-away people. We've got a series of messages here in the archives, Israel, Judah, and Jew, and we literally went through a number of biblical scriptures to lay the groundwork and set a firm foundation for those that have eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, and that literally say, okay, I understand. This makes sense. Why was I never told this? Um, not those that themselves Jews in the land of uh, Jerusalem or uh, over there in Israel right now or the Israelites as a pastor preacher of mine, uh, Pastor Peters used to always call them the Israelites, you know, because they don't even, in their own writings, they don't claim that they are true Israelites in their own writings, but they'll stand out there and in their, in their, in their, uh, in their media and so forth and, you know, call you anti-Semitic if you say something against them. It just It's a laugh in the face. It's a slap to us every time. And they're just wondering how long will we continue to believe the charade that, that they've put up here. But God said that he would give Israel the lands flowing with milk and honey. Yes, that's the Old Testament. And yes, they did go into the land of old Canaan. But he also, you got to remember, 
that some of the prophecies that were made were made about a future Jerusalem, a future time in which they would have and they would go into the wilderness where they would be nourished and so forth. And this is the biblical record. Um, so I can't get into a lot of detail you know, here now as I'm trying to close out here, but I just want to encourage those that are listening to the archives to inquire more, to, you know, don't be afraid to say, I didn't know this, I don't know that, I, how, did, how do you come to this, uh, help me out with this. You use the resources that are available. You know, we're one, one source. There are some other sources out there and some other ministries and so forth. And, you know, we will do what we can to share this truth through this medium that we have and the, the few of us that fellowship together, um, there are many that can't fellowship on that particular time. They have different work schedules, but they listen to the archives later. They download them, take them on their phones, and so forth. And we have communications from time to time from some of them. And sometimes somebody will ask me to expound upon a certain thing, and uh, it inspires me then to dig into that if there was a question, and that gives me, uh, you know, uh, something more to share with you. And this is what we're supposed to do, be ever learning, uh, but increasing in the knowledge while we learn. And uh, be able to continue to share the gospel and become better at it for each of us. So at any rate, without further ado, I'll go ahead and close down on this particular part of this uh, a little walk through history. I've got some other archives on the Gideon Warrior Network. I don't remember if I uploaded those uh, series of messages that I did a little walk through history. I believe I have. So you can just kind of peeper back through the uh, archive pages and uh, see if you see that title. And this one here will be titled A Little Walk Through History, The Lost Luna Stone. All right. Well, thanks for joining. And uh, be sure to you know send us an email. And we appreciate knowing that you're there and that you're enjoying what you're hearing and that you are able to learn something. So thanks for joining. Good night, all of you. Good day.